today on Ag News Daily. There are really good developments, uh, and in, here's why. If you reduce methane, if you really reduce methane by 20-30%, then that actually pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and it has a net so-called negative warming effect. Good afternoon and a happy Tuesday, happy Tech Tuesday, I should say, from the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr flying solo today because Delaney got a little bit caught up. You know, we try our hardest to have our schedules match up, but when they don't, things can get a little bit stressful. So I am taking the bull by the horns and tackling this episode by myself today, which is no problem, Delaney. If you're seeing this or hearing this, please don't fire me. I'm not complaining. <laughs> we we make things work and we're pretty adaptable on the Agnews Daily Podcast. So that's what we're doing today, just adapting to the circumstances. But one thing that I want to talk about today is weather. Now, Delaney is kind of our resident weather girl. I don't know if I said resident or res. I don't know. That sounded weird coming out of my mouth. But either way, Delaney is the one who talks about weather a lot on the podcast. But since I'm alone today, I figured I would do so. Here in Lubbock, we had some pretty gnarly weather over the weekend. I think it was Sunday and, and yesterday, I believe, we experienced not severe thunderstorms, but some pretty, some pretty good ones. And then we also had some hail. Luckily in the part of town that I'm in, didn't see too much, but over on the north side of town, over by our airport, they got some pretty, they weren't big sized hail, but just a lot. Um, We actually are home to the National Corn Growers Association as well as um, National Sorghum Producers. So over by their offices, I saw some pictures and it looked like it had snowed. It was it was pretty crazy, I have to say. But they're also experiencing some crazy weather in Australia. In fact, such crazy weather, such a large amount of rain and thus flood water that could be the end for their seasons of orange and mandarin harvest and possibly the end to the trees that they grow on from what I gather. Don't know if that's completely true, but as torrential rains pummel Australia's east coast, it's it's causing the worst floods in half a century. So those that live near major river systems are suffering the most with homes, roads, and even livestock being washed away. These torrential rains are causing so much damage that they're they're washing livestock away which i just really could not believe of course the low-lying areas are the most at risk and some of the producers of citrus in the area aren't doing so hot like i said they are going through their harvest this year so i don't know exactly how much we import if any from australia but could be a small disruption in the citrus market One thing that I am paying a little bit of a close attention to domestically is Paycheck Protection Program loans. The deadline to apply for PPP loans is March 31st, which is fastly approaching. I believe that's next week. But there's been discussion in Congress of extending that deadline into May. Regardless of that decision, attorney Nick Jellum says that the program is based on the availability of funds, so it might pay off to apply as early as possible. Of course, PPP is a part of the coronavirus stimulus plan under the 2020 CARES Act and provides forgivable loans up to $10 million. 
But as we also know, CFAP is kind of on pause right now. So there's kind of a lot of questions up in the air right now concerning relief, especially under this new administration. And hopefully, I, as we mentioned yesterday, I've been a part of some summits this week, and I'm going to be a part of another one hearing Tom Vilsack, Secretary Vilsack, talk some more tomorrow. I was a part of a session that he talked about yesterday where he kind of talked about CFAP and how there's a little still some uncertainty on when we're going to see those payments. And so I'm, I'm going to be a part of another summit with him tomorrow. So hopefully we can get maybe some answers. Um, I'm sure that there will be reporter questions kind of probing him a little bit further on that, but we're going to share that on the podcast. So folks stay tuned for that. But I just have one other piece of news today talking about Brazil. Soy and sugar traders are fighting for room in the largest port in Brazil, rushing to secure loading slots as the slowest Brazilian soy harvest in 10 years pushes the grains export window into the sugar season. Of course, this delay in harvest, I mean, we kind of expected this, weather's been a problem all throughout their harvesting season. So it's not too much of a shock that this is happening, although this, with it being the slowest in 10 years, it's a little bit of a shock, you have to admit. But congestion is hitting Brazil's Santos port, just as consumers worldwide have been turning to top exporter Brazil for sugar and soybean supplies. The excess in shipments waiting to leave is boosting transport costs and will likely delay arrivals at destinations. Sugar prices hit a four-year high late last month, boosted by supply tightness. Soybean prices already near seven-year highs could rise further at a time when Brazil is effectively the world's main supplier. Tiago Medeiros, who is Brazil's head and executive director for Zarnico Group says that this is a perfect storm, you know, this combination of factors that's leading to a soy and sugar competition for logistics. It's, you know, he says the the perfect storm, if you want to call it that. But Brazil usually starts soybean exports in January with volumes increasing in later months. But this season, planting was delayed, as was the harvest, pushing that window further out. So if you want to agree with Tiago, this is a perfect storm, but kind of a, um, a domino effect that's occurring, which is um, kind of happens, I guess, you know, in the world of, of agriculture. There's so many things that bleed into another, so many cogs that make up the machine, yada, 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 you know, the cliches. But with that, folks, if you want to continue to tune in to the sessions that I've been talking about, you know, teasing that up, we're going to be featuring those, you know, we're featuring one today. As part of our Tech Tuesday segment, we're talking about carbon credits, carbon sequestration, hot topic in ag right now. So if you want to have some questions answered, talking about that technology and how we're going to measure it, be sure to tune in now. With, uh, with me, I have uh, uh, Debbie Reed, who's the executive director of the uh, Ecosystem Services Market Consortium, uh, Dr. Frank Mittlunner, who is the Professor and Air Quality Specialist of the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. And we especially thank Frank, because he's in Davis, California, uh, with us this morning, uh, brought out and ready to go. 
Uh, then we have Marty Matlock, Executive Director of the University of Arkansas Resilience Center and a professor in ecological engineering. And our fourth panelist is uh, Dr. Bar Barb Glenn, CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. Uh, Dr. Glenn recently announced her retirement. I, I, I want to take a poll question on whether we're going to allow you to do that. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> I told you it would be. <laughs> Thanks, Barb, for being here. So back to the question, can the U.S. be, U.S. agriculture be get to net zero. I've, I've, we're going to start out. I've asked Marty to go first, and then we're going to go to Barb and then to Frank and Debbie. Marty, you're on. The answer is we don't know, but we're going to try and we're going to find out. Um, we think that certainly our soil-based production, row crop production, has the highest potential to sequester carbons. The, we've, we've been uh, losing carbon from the soil for 150 years with agricultural practices across the U.S., Putting that carbon back is good for the soil, as the secretary said. It's good for water quality. It's good for everything. Putting that carbon back is, is expensive, though, because it requires a change in practices. And those practices to provide that benefit don't realize immediate returns to the farmer, but they, but they manifest real cost to the farmer. So we're working right now with Chuck Rice at Kansas State. Chuck and I are working with FFAR, with USFRA, and with the National Academies of Sciences, and we've assembled a, a team of nationwide uh, scientists to explore this question. Uh, we'll have a research strategy to achieve that goal uh, in early fall. We'll have that available for the public. So we're trying to figure that out. What what kind of uh, what's the gap between what we know and what we need to know in order to uh, to meet that goal? Mark. Yeah, I'm going to step out uh, following Marty's great remark and say, yes, agriculture can be net zero. And I'm, I'm going to back up for a minute and try to define what net zero means, and then Frank can fix it for me. Um, that's the balance between the amount of greenhouse gas produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere. So so we reach net zero when the amount we add is no more than the amount we, t we take away. And so just starting from that... Um, I think it's really bigger than net zero. Um, we at NASDA know that climate resiliency is directly related to healthy and economically viable rural communities. So if you back away from net zero initiative, um, it truly will drive healthy rural communities. So, so there's so many co-benefits associated with it. So two reasons I would say uh, we can reach it. Number one, farmers and ranchers are innovators and adopters. Uh, agriculture indeed is an environmental solution. Now, I grant we have gaps, Marty, but I think it's a solution. Agriculture has shown for decades that we can enhance the environment, and we're continuing to do that. And now we need to be at this table today and be defining agriculture as basically a sink. Um, number two, research put into action is going to make this happen. So I'm relying on uh, Frank and Marty to get this done. Um, research provides measurements and tools that are going to allow us to reach net zero. So that's that's my start off, Phil. <laughs> okay, your answer is yes. Frank. Yeah, Phil. Um, well, thanks for, for asking that question. I think that there are many sectors in society that actually really need to go net zero because they are fossil fuel-based. Agriculture is not. Uh, we have one main greenhouse gas, which is methane, um, that we have to deal with. The other one is nitrous oxide. Um, on the methane side, um, there are really good developments, uh, and in, here's why. If you reduce methane, 
if you really reduce methane by 20, 30%, then that actually pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and it has a net so-called negative warming effect, which is a cooling effect. So I think we can do even more than being in net zero. We can be carbon, not carbon, we can be climate neutral. Climate neutral, meaning we can uh, reduce methane on the one side, which can have a cooling effect, counteracting nitrous oxide. If we reduce enough methane, if we reduce enough methane, then we can be one of two sectors of society that has the ability to, to pull out more carbon than we add. And that has a tremendous effect. So I totally agree with you, Bob, and with you, Marty. Uh, agriculture provides significant uh, solutions in this climate in, the, in this climate theater. Okay, Frank, we're going to come back to, to, to methane uh, a little later. Debbie. I, I have to say yes. I mean, absolutely, agriculture can not only be carbon neutral, but can provide other solutions and tools for society. I think the thing that, um, to focus on is that this is a significant new demand we're putting on the agricultural sector, right? We're asking agriculture to produce food, fuel, feed, fiber, and now we're asking them to do significant um, solution opportunities, if you will, drawing down atmospheric carbon by um, increased soil carbon sequestration and then reducing nitrous oxide, methane, as Frank points out, um, but also uh, carbon dioxide from other places. I think the thing we need to focus on is providing the tools to the sector to do this. That means educational opportunities to understand in each geography and production system what our two million independent business operators on the landscape can do in their own operations that works, as well as um, providing financial signals and uh, opportunities. And then finally, technical assistance, right? There's a lot that needs to happen to do this, but absolutely, with all of those coming together and the public sector and the private sector working together on integrated opportunities and solutions, we can definitely get there. Okay, great, thanks. Well, the second thing that the the president talked about and, uh, and Secretary Vilsack talks about uh, uh, every time he addresses this issue is uh, to say that uh, not only can we get to net zero, but we're going to create a new revenue stream for our farmers through ecosystem practices, through reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So my next question, next question is, how doable is that? Uh, and uh, what kind of, uh, is that going to benefit farmers? Are farmers gonna get a meaningful source of new income? And uh, is it going to be, uh, farmers all over the country going to be able to participate? Are farmers in Georgia and Texas and Colorado, California going to be, is it, or is this gonna be primarily Midwest? Now, there's a couple of, to set this up, there are a couple of ways to pay farmers. One is direct payments from the government through a conservation mechanism or something else. The other is carbon markets, of course. And we don't know what that price is going to be. But let's let's start with the price that to where we are now, uh, $15, $20 a ton. Um, I know there are experts who say you really need to get up to 40 at some point, but that's not where the markets are. Um, maybe they'll get there eventually. But let's, uh, I want to start with, uh, I want to start with you this time, Frank. Um, what's the, uh, what's the potential for, are farmers going to make money and uh, what do we, what do we know about that? And what are the, re are there regional disparities that are going to exist? 
Yeah, so as you mentioned, I live in California, and here we have a functioning cap-and-trade system. And um, it's a system that uh, farmers actually do benefit from. So, for example, uh, recently, a few years ago, uh, our legislature passed a law called SB 1383, mandating a 40% reduction of methane. 40 percent reduction of methane to be achieved by the year 2030. At first, our farmers thought, oh my gosh, you know, how in the world can we achieve that? But little did they know that the state had something interesting uh, in mind, namely that they wouldn't uh, try to achieve that with uh, what I call the cane approach of rules, regulations, and fines. But they went the carrot approach of incentivizing um, mitigation options. And so the state put approximately half a billion dollars into the effort of reducing methane uh, and partnered with the dairy and livestock sector. And out came a situation where we now have many of our dairies capping their lagoon, covering their lagoon, trapping the biogas, and then converting the biogas into renewable natural uh, gas, which is a, a fuel type, which then goes into vehicles like semi-trucks. This conversion of biogas captured from the lagoons, from the manure lagoons, into a fuel type is the most carbon negative fuel type there is, highly uh, incentivized, financially incentivized, through what's called low carbon fuel standard credits. And we now have dairies that make very significant um, uh, or yeah, take advantage of this, of this, uh, of this tool and, uh, and really have a significant income stream stream through um, through this conversion of biogas to, to fuel. So uh, absolutely, there is um, a financial incentive of people to uh, convert something that used to be the liability, emissions from the manure, into an asset, which is, in this, in this case, a fuel type. We already, after having set this goal of 40%, have achieved 25%. We're over halfway there, only three years after that law passed. That's sensational, okay? And a 25% reduction of methane has a real impact on climate, a real impact on climate, meaning it is generating negative warming, which is not a fancy word for cooling, okay? We are on a path to climate neutrality to be achieved, I would say, within the next 10 years within our dairy and livestock sector. Frank, I'm going to ask you one follow-up question before I move to the rest of our panelists. Uh, you talked about your cap-and-trade program in California. You have a low-carbon fuel standard as well. Do you need uh, a, a cap-and-trade or, or some kind of me government mechanism like that to, to get to where you are in California? In my opinion, you do. Um, many other states and farmers in other states are now doing what I just said. They are uh, covering their lagoon. They are generating... Uh, or they're building uh, anaerobic digesters, and then they're selling into the California market because their states don't have that. And uh, their states should have that uh, because we need to have tools to incentivize uh, farmers to do what's right. And these uh, technologies are not cheap. They are not cheap. Okay? They can cost millions of dollars. So why would somebody make such an investment if there's no incentive? We have to incentivize it. And it's not just the manure. It's also, it's also, for example, feed additives. But the industry is not waiting for the government to jump into action. We now have large companies, food companies, 
that tell their farmers, we give you money to buy feed additives to reduce enteric emissions, meaning what's belched out by cattle, for example. We pay for your feed additives so that you can feed them to your cows and reduce uh, the supply chain emissions. Okay. Barb, I want to move to you. There is, uh, there's no one probably at Washington who's more in tune to what's going on and more sensitive <laughs> to the 50 states, to the differences between the states and yeah. uh, than you are. Uh, I'd like to, what is your, what is your read on this? Uh, can, can you tell your uh, the agriculture uh, ag commissioners and secretaries that, uh, that uh, they're all going to, they all have a potential, all of their farmers have a potential benefit here? Yeah, well, um, thank you, Phil. Uh, we're, we, the question was, are we going to create a new revenue stream for right. farmers and ranchers? And, and Frank's uh, and California's evidence that the answer to that is yes, we can do that. Uh, it's all about providing recognition to what farmers and ranchers have, again, been doing for decades, as I mentioned earlier, and um, bringing that back home to them. So state departments of agriculture don't play a direct role right now that we see in a, uh, establishing a carbon bank, but we certainly play a role. And our role is um, building um, engagement with farmers who trust us uh, through education, technical assistance, financing programs. We work as advisors. We work with soil conservation districts. We work with NRCS and so forth. So we work in these partnerships and partnerships is, is the successful private sector that is where it is today on carbon um, credits and carbon banks um, and also the public uh, the concept of a public bank. And so we view um, all of this is important, but in that um, public arena, uh, the focus has to be on the farmer. We have to maintain, uh, I think Secretary Vilsack said that very clearly this morning, a public bank's gonna balance that responsibility to bring recognition to farmers and ranchers. And, and these are for farmers that can't participate perhaps in a uh, private bank, Debbie. And um, so I think the carbon bank can fill that gap. We can provide for the diversity of ag, Phil, that you mentioned. Uh, first of all, oh my goodness, different sizes of farms across the United States and in the, all uh, the 50 states and the territories. We have different kinds of farmers. Um, now we're discussing socially disadvantaged farmers, but you and we all know them as new and beginning farmers, next generation, women. Uh, need to have equity in, in being able to aspire to the uh, participate in a bank. And then uh, incentives are important. And uh, Frank's indicated how important it is that it's incentive driven. So I just think uh, in the end, we need to uh, have climate smart agriculture available to all those. And so I do think it's this private and public um, banking, if you will, that we've got to head toward. Hmm. Debbie, you mentioned, uh, or Frank mentioned the food companies and what they're what they're asking for. You, with the consortium, are working with a number of those companies. You have a number of projects going on around the country. I think trying to address this country, uh, this this question that we're talking about, this revenue stream. What's it going to be? Uh, talk to us about what um, is is that revenue stream uh, doable, and uh, what are the regional differences going to be? Yeah, I, I think it's yeah, it's absolutely doable. So we're a public-private partnership working across the agricultural food sector and, and value chain, really helping companies as well as um, farmers on the ground, farmers and ranchers on the ground, to help companies who have taken on voluntary commitments to reduce their direct and their indirect greenhouse gas footprints, 
to really achieve those commitments in a way that is meaningful to them, right? while paying farmers and ranchers for the benefits that they um, actually undertake on the ground. So we're building this together um, and ensuring that we're learning together, we're making our investments together, we're co-investing in the build out of a national scale market. And I think that's um, the important point is that we are all learning together. These markets have largely been nascent and are not yet um, totally uh, liquid right now, but we have learned a lot. And I think the important point is that we are um, bringing the tools to both buyers and sellers to help meet those demands. We commissioned a demand side analysis in 1998, um, looking at just the United States and both what the companies were um, looking to mitigate their footprint. And at that time, there was a $5.2 billion demand from carbon and greenhouse gas um, emission reductions from the agricultural sector. That's an important demand signal. And if we can help farmers and ranchers to meet that signal, we will create liquidity in these markets and provide an additional signal. The markets are only one potential opportunity, um, but uh, I think they're an important potential opportunity for us to um, help really raise that ambition, if you will. Well, folks, again, please do tune in to the second and third part because this is quite a long session in the coming weeks at agnewsdaily.com. Follow along with us on social media as we continue to cover the latest topics in agriculture. And today, I forgot to mention this at the top of the podcast, is National Ag Day. So if you want to share some of your ag photos, some of your stories, please do so on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at agnewsdaily.com. With that, I'm going to let the people go.